Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, last week, if you were here, we had the privilege of hearing a great message from our guest speaker, Dr. Michael Kruger, on the Christian life as a race. And I, I want to say, if you weren't here last week, please go back and, and, and listen to the recording of that message because it's one that you definitely don't want to miss. But this week, we'll resume our sermon series on miracles. Miracles. So two weeks ago, I said that miracles... They don't happen in the Bible just because. But miracles are used as signs that reveal deeper truths about God. And what we said was that in the Gospel of John in particular, John only mentions like a handful of miracles of Jesus, but he uses them to tell us more about Jesus' bigger mission and ministry. At the end of the book of John, in John chapter 20, John tells us the reason why he wrote the gospel at all, and specifically why he wrote about miracles. Take a look at John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes of Jesus' miracles so that those who read it or hear it would believe. So here's the question I want us to look at right now. 
Is seeing believing? Do you have to see it to believe it? In other words, do miracles produce faith? Do miracles produce faith? So if you're not a Christian and you're visiting our church today, I want to ask you, if I were to perform a miracle right now on stage, if I were to miraculously heal someone who's paralyzed like Jesus does in our passage today, if this person were to just get up from his wheelchair and and dance around on stage, would that make you a Christian? Are miracles enough to convince the hardened skeptics in our world? So if God were to speak thunderously from the heavens, and if he were to say, I'm real, would the entire world believe in him? I went through this uh, Russian literature phase in college, and and my favorite author by far was uh, Dostoevsky. And I remember reading this in college and just being blown away. Here's what he writes in The Brothers Karamazov. You may have heard this quote before. In my opinion, miracles will never confound a realist. A realist, uh, another word for, for thinker or skeptic. It's not miracles that bring a realist to faith. A true realist, if he's not a believer, will always find in himself the strength and ability not to believe in miracles as well. And if a miracle stands before him as an irrefutable fact, he will sooner doubt his own senses than admit the fact. And even if he does admit it, he will admit it as a fact of nature that was previously unknown to him. In the realist, faith is not born from miracles, but miracles from faith. Once the realist comes to believe, then precisely because of his realism, he must also allow for miracles. The apostle Thomas declared that he would not believe until he saw. And when he saw, he said, my Lord and my God. Was it the miracle that made him believe? Most likely not. But he believed first and foremost because he wished to believe and maybe already fully believed in his secret heart as he was saying, I will not believe until I see. If I were to heal somebody on stage right now, maybe some of you would believe. But I think a lot of you would think, oh man, they're staging this. This is is fake. And the reason I say that is because the Bible is littered with people who witnessed crazy miracles, but still didn't believe. From the Israelites in the Old Testament, they literally watched the Red Sea part and they walked through it. Imagine that, running your fingers along the walls of, the, of water on either side, walking through it and then watching as, as, as the sea crashed down on the Egyptian chariots. These Israelites, they were fed miraculously. Every day, manna just appeared and they were able to eat. Water came from the unlikeliest of places, a rock. And yet, how often in the wilderness did they doubt God? Did they disbelieve? And this happened throughout Israel's history. 
into the New Testament. Think about, uh, in a few weeks, I'll be preaching on this, Jesus feeding crowds of thousands, miraculously, five loaves of bread, two small fish, and with that, he's able to feed 5,000 men and also women and children. And yet, they all leave. They don't believe. Think about people like Judas. He literally witnessed every miracle that Jesus ever performed and still betrayed him. Miracles, they do not guarantee faith. They don't necessarily produce faith. It's not the miracles themselves that make us believe, but what the miracles are pointing to. So in our passage today, an important official comes to Jesus because his son is very sick. His son is about to die. Imagine the desperation. He pleads with Jesus, please come heal my son. And Jesus says something very strange to him. He says in verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You know, in verse 48, it sounds at first like Jesus is saying that miracles produce faith. You have to see the miracle and then you'll believe. But what Jesus is actually doing is he's criticizing the Israelites. It's, it's an expression of frustration. He's saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. What he's doing is he's criticizing people who are just looking for miracles, who are just looking for signs and wonders, who are just looking for the extraordinary. He's almost saying this, I wish you would just believe. Kind of like me saying to my wife every day, I wish the kids would just listen. And, and that's what happens with the official. Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And the man, he believes before he sees the miracle, he believes. The faith comes first. And as the official is on his way home, his servant comes and meets him and shares the news that, hey, your son is recovering. And the man asks, what time did, did he turn? What time did that recovery take place? And it turned out to be the exact time when Jesus told him, your son will live. The miracle, it didn't cause this man to believe, but you know what it did do? It strengthened his faith. His entire household ended up believing. Miracles, they don't guarantee faith, but they do strengthen our faith. So our hope for this whole sermon series is that those who don't believe will come to believe as they hear of what these miracles are signs for. And also that those of us who do believe, those of us who are Christians, will be strengthened and encouraged in our faith. So the very first miracle in John that we talked about two weeks ago took place at a wedding. It was this joyous celebration of love that is enhanced and extended by Jesus. And it showed the surpassing joy that Jesus 
brings. But I love that the very next two miracles, they couldn't be more different from the first. The witnesses of these next two miracles, they're not rejoicing. They're not celebrating. They're distraught. They're panicking. And this shows us that Jesus does not just come to those who are enjoying life, who have it all together. Jesus comes to the broken in order to fix them. And in these two miracles, side by side, on the one hand, we have an official, important, influential, respected, rich, and then we have this paralyzed man who is the lowest of the low, both needing the healing of Jesus. So I want to look at these two miracles where Jesus shows himself as a healer. And I want to look at three aspects of Jesus' healing in these two miracles today. The condition, the cure, and the cost. The condition, the cure, and the cost. First, the condition. One of the most important ways that the miracles of Jesus are signs of is, is the condition that Jesus treats. So what we see is this. The physical condition, it mirrors and points to an underlying spiritual condition. So physical illness points to a spiritual disease that needs to be cured. Physical paralysis points to a spiritual paralysis. So in our passage today, we have the son of an official who is sick to the point of death. And we also have a man who was an invalid for 38 years. These are pretty serious conditions. But what the Bible tells us is that the spiritual condition is even more serious than the, spirit, uh, than the physical condition. After Jesus heals the paralyzed man, he finds him again later on in the temple. And he tells him in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Nothing worse may happen to you. What can be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. Well, Jesus is pointing to a deeper brokenness caused by sin. And this brokenness is something that all of us have within us as human beings. This is how the Bible describes a human condition. Because of sin, because of the fall, we are all broken and in need of healing. What this means is that your biggest, most serious problem, my biggest, most serious problem, it's not physical, it's not psychological, it's not social, it's not circumstantial, but it's spiritual. Your biggest problem is, is not your failing marriage, it's not your body, it's not your anxiety, it's not your career. It's not your past trauma. Your biggest problem is not external to you, but deep within you. 
in the biblical doctrine of total depravity, it tells us that there's not one part of us that's unaffected by sin. Every part of who we are is affected by sin. Because of the fall, we all have within us this profound brokenness that then informs every part of us, our psychology, our emotions, our mental health, our physical health. And if left untreated, we will become worse, not better. And it won't just affect us individually, but all those around us and everyone in our lives. So in the case of the official, his son is gravely ill, but that brokenness has deeply impacted his entire family and household. And in our second healing, Jesus goes to Jerusalem where he visits this famous pool. It's the pool of Bethesda. And this pool, it was said to have healing powers. So every so often, the waters would begin to stir, and when that happened, the first person who entered the waters would be miraculously healed. Now, I'm not sure if it actually healed people or if everyone just superstitiously believed it would heal people, but, but you can imagine the scene. Jesus comes during one of the major feasts in Jerusalem, so it's even more crowded than normal. The place is packed, hundreds of people suffering from all sorts of afflictions, and these, many of them would be the lowest of the low, the ones who couldn't be gainfully employed. They had to survive entirely on the pity of others. Imagine the smells the unwashed bodies, the the human waste, the open sores. All you hear, if you're there, is moaning and groaning and also the angry voices of people fighting to get better positioning to try to get into the pool first. And I think more than the sights, more than the sounds, more than the smells, what would be the most noticeable thing there would be the tension thick in the air. Every single person there with one purpose, one goal, desperately doing whatever they can to get into the pool to fix their brokenness. And the moment there's any hint of movement in the water, imagine the elbowing, the fighting, the trampling, the pulling of hair, biting, scratching out of sheer desperation. What does it feel like to fight with everything you have only to see someone else get into the pool first? What does that do to you to live in this environment for years? What kind of person do you become living in this environment? There's no rest. There's no joy. Only this never-ending anxiety and even bitterness and anger. And in so many ways, I think that this pool, it is a picture of the human condition, and it also very closely mirrors what life can be like here in New York City. Millions of people broken, hurt, angry, desperate to find healing. 
I think many of you would agree that this city can be one of the most restless and joyless, joyless places in the world. I mean, you can be as rich and successful as this official in John 4, or as poor and lowly as this paralyzed man who had been this way for 40 years. And maybe you don't even know it about yourself, but you are desperate and willing to do anything you can to find healing. And what happens in this exhaustive search for healing? You lash out. You hurt others, even those closest to you. What does it do to you year after year, seeing others get what you want? I think we see this especially magnified in, in social media. When you see other people successful, other people with the body type that you don't have, what does that do to you? Living, living life every day, knowing that the brokenness in you, it's still there and there's nothing that you can do about it. And it is to this scene that the healer of the world comes. Jesus comes to this pool and he asks one man a very strange question but also a very profound and crucial question. He finds the man and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, this may seem like a strange question because it's very obvious, right? Imagine you're this man and some stranger comes up to you and says, do you want to be healed? You'd probably say, no. What do you think I'm doing here? Of course I want to be healed. What kind of question is that? It's insensitive, right? I debated whether or not to share this story, but um, you know, when you're a parent, your kids do things that kind of mortify you. And, and there was this one moment where uh, my kids moved to a new school and one of my kids uh, was in this class and I dropped him off and I was waiting for him to go into his class. And he's the new kid. He doesn't really know people, so he's trying to get to know people there, and, and one of his classmates was in a walking brace. And, you know, he was, he, he's a great kid. Um, and he was like joking around and saying, yeah, I was running and, and doing this. And then my son goes, wait, what do you mean you were running? And my, I cringed so hard, but they were walking into the class, so I couldn't, I couldn't grab him and, and say anything. Um, so that evening, I had to have a long discussion with him about how we should be sensitive to other people and be careful about what we say because it may hurt people and not to point out differences. Does Jesus need some extra sensitivity training right here? Is he being insensitive? Is he being rude? No. I think the point of Jesus' question is to correct this man's understanding of true healing. It's to show that the healing Jesus brings isn't just to get rid of the symptoms, but it's fixing that deep, residing brokenness 
within him that's causing the symptoms. He's asking him, do you just want to walk? Or do you want everything in you that is broken to be fixed, even if that means you still can't walk? That's a really important question that I think all of us should think about. If Jesus were to say, you know what, that deep brokenness I won't touch, but I will give you all the riches of the world. I will give you the body that you want. I will give you the marriage that you want. I will give you the home that you want. Would we take it? Do we want to be healed? And I think that leads to my next point, which is the cure. Because so many of the destructive behaviors in our lives, they come because we misdiagnose our condition and we look for healing in the wrong places. The official comes to Jesus in the 11th hour. His son is about to die. And and you have to think, how many doctors had this official seen? How many treatments had he tried? He comes to Jesus literally as a last resort. And when Jesus, he comes to the paralyzed man and he asks him, hey, do you want to be healed? What is his answer? Take a look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Think of the irony here. The healer of the world is standing right in front of him, and this man, all he can do is look to the pool. Don't we do this? We look everywhere else but Jesus to find satisfaction and happiness. We try everything else. Even when we come to church to meet Jesus, our minds and hearts are still thinking about our pools. Jesus, will you help me with my career? Will you help me find a husband and wife or wife? Will you help me get what will really heal me? So instead of finding our healing in Jesus, we keep going to the pools of this world. Tim Keller, he, he always used to tell this story about a teenage girl that he was talking to after a Bible study. And she said to him, Jesus is great. The Bible's great. I'm really thankful for what Jesus did. But what good is it if I can't get a date? I think in many ways, we, we, we have that mindset. And I want to ask you today, honestly, what is your pool? The one thing that you set your heart on, if I can just get there, I'll be happy. I'll be fixed. If I can just make this much money, if I can just have this type of body, if this person will just love me, if my parents will approve or be proud of me, We all have pools. And our pools can can also be ways that we self-medicate or try on our own to treat our deep brokenness. 
So we can look to numb the pain that we feel inside. We can abuse alcohol, sex, substances, food, or just distract ourselves endlessly, binge-watching shows or just scrolling our TikTok feeds. But in all these examples, we are looking for healing from things that will never heal us. They will only make us more selfish, more anxious, more depressed, more angry, and more desensitized. We need to see, we need to acknowledge that the idols of our hearts will never save us. But they will enslave us. What happens when you seek healing in your career? Your career will consume you. You will sacrifice everything on the altar of work and professional advancement. And what happens if you lose a job or don't get that promotion? You are wrecked. What happens when you look to a relationship or marriage to heal you? Well, you'll become insecure or possessive when the relationship doesn't meet your needs. When you tie your self-worth to your partner, that relationship will enslave you. It will consume you. And what happens when you lose it? You know, sin is never okay just having a part of you. It wants the whole thing. It will take everything from you and then demand more. What's interesting about this story is that it takes place on the Sabbath. And that's intentional. Because the Sabbath is about rest. But that's the one thing that no one at this pool has. Nobody. Everyone is tense. Everyone's anxious. Everyone's desperate. They're on edge. But the healing that Jesus brings is Sabbath rest. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' mission is to heal us and give us his yoke, his burden, his rest. He takes us from this chaotic, this hellish pool of Bethesda to the infinity pool at the Four Seasons where we can sip Mai Tais at the swim-up bar. We can laugh. We can rejoice. We can rest in him. Remember, two weeks ago, we said that Jesus is deeply committed to your joy. And here we see that Jesus wants to heal you, bring you into his Sabbath rest. And if you're a Christian, he's already done it. He's already healed you. He's already fixed you. But we, because of sin, we keep going back to the pool, don't we? In Christ, you're healed. We just sang, look where my chains are now. We don't need to go back there. 
My last point is the cost. The Christian life, it will come at some cost to us. Now, not that our salvation is at all dependent on what we do or our works, but following Jesus will come at a social cost. So Jesus could have just told the paralyzed man, get up and walk, but he doesn't do that. He says, uh, take a look at what he says, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Jesus commands this man to pick up his mat because he knows that that will put him in conflict with society. It goes against all social norms and expectations. He will stand out. He will not be understood. He will not be liked. And I know for some of us that is terrifying. It's the last thing we want. But given the stakes, it it really doesn't compare. Imagine if the paralyzed man heard Jesus say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. He thought about it and then he said to Jesus, no, thanks, Jesus. It's the Sabbath. And uh, I don't want to get in trouble by carrying my mat. I'm not going to take that healing. Thanks, though. Same with the official and his son, right? Our fear of man, it could be so crippling. But in the grand scheme of things, what does it matter what others think of us? Why is that so important to us? How insignificant is our likability when true healing, eternal rest, are given to us as a gift? The social cost that we are called to bear, it's so small compared to what we get. And also what Jesus bore to heal us. Because Jesus calls us to rest in him because he will work for us to the end. Jesus lived the perfect life that we fail to live. He went to the cross to die the death that we all deserve to die. He does it all. The good shepherd accomplishes everything for his sheep. We rest because he didn't rest. This healing, it's far greater than anything we could have ever hoped for. And this healing is so good that we can't just keep it to ourselves. God calls us to share our hope with others. You know, when the official's son is healed, his entire household believes. Jesus worked to bring us rest, and we receive that rest for free. It's a gift of sheer grace. You know, Jesus could have gone to the pool and he could have done the Oprah, right? You get a healing, you get a healing, you get a healing, you get a healing. He doesn't do that. He could have healed every person there, but he doesn't. I don't know why. One man he goes to, and he heals this one man. I don't know why there are so many people in this world who don't know Jesus. I don't think I'll ever know the answer to that question. But what I do know is this, my salvation... It is special. It is, it is so... I have won the cosmic lottery 
of salvation. I don't take that for granted. Jesus' healing, it's ours no matter what. And that's the beauty of the gospel. This man, he was healed before he ever lifted a finger. His healing wasn't contingent on anything. Jesus doesn't say, pick up your mat first. And then if you obey me, I'll heal you. No. There's, there's nothing that we contribute to our salvation. Jesus' healing, it's not about working or earning or performing. It's not about scratching and clawing and elbowing and biting and fighting. It's about rest. And we are now called to go and bring others into that rest with us. You know, we often think of evangelism as, as telling people about Jesus. But here's a much better way to evangelize. Rest. Let others see you rest. What does that look like to your coworkers when you're the only one not panicking, not stressed out because work is everything for you? You're going to look really different. And they're going to ask you, what is this about you? How can you do that? How, why isn't this affecting you the way it's affecting me? Your rest is probably the most powerful tool of witness that you have. So rest hard. We're about to come to the table in a few moments. And as we do, let's consider the question that Jesus asks. Do you want to be healed? And then as we come to the table, let's leave our pools. Recognize that there's no healing for us there. And then let's come to Jesus, the healer of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the healer of the world. We thank you that you have come to the likes of us, broken, lowly, undeserving, and you have fixed that deep residing brokenness that is in all of us. Help us to stop going back to our pools, but finding in Jesus true happiness satisfaction, meaning, and rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.